verses 1 and 2 of Luke chapter 15, we see a sort of list of those in Jesus' audience. Verse 1 names tax collectors and sinners, and verse 2 names Pharisees and teachers of the law. It's important to remember that the people named here are members of Jesus' own Jewish community. And I'm going to use the term Jewishness because I don't know how else to explain it. Their Jewishness is more important because it helps us understand why certain things are included in the stories and why we might understand the stories maybe a little bit differently than the original ears that heard them. The Jewish listeners would have had a full understanding of Mosaic law, meaning the law that came about when Moses was leading the Israelites. And their understanding, that understanding that they have, is key to how they heard particularly this third parable. Added to that is the audience of the recorder, the person who wrote the Gospel of Luke. This writer's audience was largely those outside the Jewish faith, those whom the Bible often refers to as Gentiles, That's us, too, even if we are removed by 2,000 or so years. Some people would argue, and I don't disagree with them, that we are all to be found in all three audiences and all the characters. There are so many reasons that parables are so rich with meaning, and every time you read one, you should come to it and have a little bit different understanding. The first two parables in this three-part set speak to things that at first read might seem foreign or removed from our present circumstances, but that we still recognize and understand. They talk about possessions and money. These stories could and have been seen to represent the nature of God. We were lost, separate from God, and then because God loved us and treasured us so much, God set out to find us, just like the sheep and the coin in these two parables. What may be less often seen, and may be less often relatable to some of us, are the people in the stories, a shepherd and a poor woman. I mean, when was the last time that you lost your sheep? Or more likely, the sheep of your boss. My boss doesn't have any sheep, so that's good. Or when were you desperate to find the missing piece of your economic lifeline? Both of the people mentioned in the first two stories are those who would be considered kind of on the edges of polite Jewish society. Shepherds, we all remember from the narratives surrounding Jesus' birth, were just lowly, dirty folks who were out on the edges of the Jewish every day. They were eking out an existence, constantly at the mercy of the market for sheep and the people who owned the sheep and their own ability to maintain and protect their willful and stubborn animal charges. And the woman? She didn't have much value or social status. She was basically chattel property that was transferred from her family of origin to her family of marriage with only a meager dowry, those few coins, to protect her if she became widowed or divorced. So, in that place, in that time, to the people who were listening, the sheep and the coin easily could represent economic lifelines and perhaps barrier lines that might have been drawn by religious laws and societal convention as part of the margin that separated the good boys and girls from the sinners. Those lines, those are the lines that Jesus came to blur or erase. Jesus' stories were easily understood by the people outside the lines. They were easily interpreted by the religious leaders as well. But because there was a greater, deeper meaning beyond the the simple lost and found of the stories, Jesus went on and told another deeper story that required more thought and provided several more entry points into the ideas of who and what had been lost. 
the first words of the third parable, which is where we started today with scripture. The first words set the scene by naming the cast of characters, a man and his two sons. Immediately, they are identified by their relationship to each other, one father, one older son, and one younger son. And yes, the characters all are mentioned as male, but don't be fooled. There are just as many prodigal daughters as there are sons. And these characters, they're an example of all of us. We're all identified by relationship. We're parents or children or siblings or spouses or friends. So as much as anything else, this story is a story of relationships, relationships lost and found. In his book, The Return of the Prodigal Son, the writer and theologian Henry Nouwen invites the reader into the relationship between the characters in this parable. And if you haven't read this book, I would highly recommend it. It's very short and it's a really easy read, but it's a very good way to engage with Scripture. Nouwen suggests that each of us is not just one character, but all three. So as we move through this story in three parts, try to imagine yourself, as Aaron said, in each character's shoes. And this week, you'll be in the shoes of the younger son. The action of the story commences with the younger son, who behaves in a manner that's not to be read as just greedy, because a simple reading would be he's greedy, but it can be read as hateful and spiteful. He doesn't ask nicely, but demands his share of his father's estate, meaning, I want my inheritance now before you die. In Jesus' day, in a society that was bound by relationship rules regarding when and how and to whom a father's property was transferred, it sounded probably more like, I want you to die, or I wish you were dead. Remember the I hate you and the slamming door? That's what it sounded like. We wouldn't do that today, would we? And back then, you just didn't do that either. It was the supreme insult. It spoke to the integrity and the identity of the father and the son, and it did not speak well. It said out loud, I loathe you and your leadership and our religious tradition so much that I don't want anything to do with you and I don't want your name anymore. I only want what little bit that you've got that means anything to me, so give me my stuff. It spoke to the willingness of the son to break a relationship, not just with his father, but also with his brother and with his religious community and the extended family of his faith community. He disowned and wanted to change and reshape an identity that would have covered and protected him for a lifetime. It doesn't feel good for us sitting here even to hear those words in a story, does it? Some of us may have spoken words like these and we meant them to hurt someone. Some of us may have heard words like these spoken to us and those words, they hurt us even now. The next part of the story came as no surprise to the original audience, nor should it surprise us. The younger son packed up, left with his inheritance, went far away, and proceeded to squander what he had, as the text says, living wildly. We don't know what he did with his inheritance because it doesn't say, but we can guess. We've seen and we recognize this pattern. Maybe we've even lived it. The wasteful extravagance of a person who's no longer worried about protecting his family name, who's no longer worried about making his father proud. 
making questionable choices with time and resources, wringing every last ounce of wild living out of every last dime until it's all gone. And then, famine. Famine means there was no food. There was probably no water, and there was nothing available for him. And because he had no food, and he had no money, and he had no safety net from his family, he did the only thing he could do. He went out and got a job feeding pigs, because that's what I would do when I needed a job, go out and find a job feeding pigs. But, again, paying attention to who this son was, hanging around with pigs was the lowest of the low for someone in Jewish society. The religious leaders who were hearing this were maybe silently cheering that the son finally got what he deserved for being so disrespectful and uppity to his father and his family. Or they were shaking their heads sadly because of the disgrace the son had brought on his father's name. And the sinners? Well, maybe they were feeling empathy for one who was sharing their place as the lowest of the least of these. And you? How do you hear? and identify with this part of the story. As the son was working, he was working and he was starving and he was longing for the ability to eat even some of the nasty stuff that he was feeding those pigs. Now, when we think of feeding pigs, we likely think of feeding them slop. You know, that lovely word. Basically, slop is compost in a bucket with some liquids thrown in so that the pigs can digest it. This text is pretty specific, though, that the son was feeding the pigs pods. And every version that I read said the same word, pods. So I thought that must mean something. So I went and looked it up because I imagined something like pea pods or grain heads. But when I looked it up, I found that it was probably instead these funky looking pods from a carob tree that looked kind of like a whole bunch of snakes wrapped around the limb of the tree. And yes, it is what pigs would have eaten, but it's also apparently what the lowest of the low people in that place at that time would have eaten, especially if they were in a time of famine, because that's all that they could afford or get. So again, this son is portrayed as being at the very bottom, and he knew it. And so did the people who were hearing Jesus' story. The son was starving and alone, but no one would give him anything to eat, not to mention be his friend. So, while he was alone and starving and working, he began to be kind of homesick. He was longing to be at home, and he realized that even his father's servants had enough to eat, and so he decided he would go home and make a grand speech with all the good words like, sinned against heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy. And we don't know if he meant it at first. Sometimes we say things just because they're the right, good-sounding things. But whether he meant them or not, he decided that he would set out for home, and that's what he did. And in that setting out for home, he began his long road to what commentators and theologians and church people call repentance. Repentance, that word that we've probably heard, we've heard it in songs and we've heard it spoken, it just means simply to turn your ways around. Quite literally, this son was turning around his decision to end a relationship. He was going back to start it again. How many times as he was on his way must he have played the scene over and over in his mind? How often did he practice the words, I've sinned against heaven and you. 
I'm not worthy. I've sinned against heaven and you. I'm not worthy. And what did he expect to happen when he got home? I think every person who has ever heard this story can identify with the feeling, the feeling of dread that was in the pit of his stomach, and it must have been weighing down every step that he took. And also, we can probably identify with that little spark of hope that might have hidden itself in the far part of his heart. But maybe none of us could imagine the last scene in this younger son's story. Not only was he welcomed back, he was met as he was coming. How must, his, how must he have felt when he looked up and he saw his father, who had apparently been waiting for him because it says he saw him from a long way off, and his father's unceremoniously running to greet him with a kiss? How much disbelief or gratitude or bewilderment filled his heart when his rehearsed words tumbled out and he said all he was going to say, and instead of being fussed at or turned away, he received a coat and a ring, and a feast. The people who were surrounding Jesus would surely have been as astounded and astonished as the younger brother in the story, but likely for very different reasons. The so-called sinners would probably joyfully recognize themselves being found, being welcomed back into God's arms. If this young man could all but blaspheme the God of Israel and be welcomed back with open arms, there was surely hope and reconciliation for them too. And the religious leaders, they were probably scornfully turning up their noses at the idea of this father celebrating the return of such a filthy excuse for a son. And the Gentile readers, maybe they were pondering what it meant for those who were lost to be found, for the dead to be alive again. And us today, maybe we recognize ourselves in the son in all the ways that that son was lost to himself to his family, to God, and then found again by all of them. The rest of this story will, for today, be left for other storytellers because this is the place where the younger brother's actual experience leaves the page. You don't see him again in the rest of the story. But since we've been in his shoes for a little bit, don't you wonder, don't you wonder what he felt when the ring and the coat and the sandals arrived? What might he have said in response to his father's command to kill the fattened calf? No, 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 no. You don't need to do that. What happened the next day when the feast was over? When he had to wake up and face his father and brother and servants again? When his welcome home turned into every day? Perhaps this is where the real transformation happened we see that the relationships that were destroyed by the I wish you were dead were repaired, reshaped, and reborn by the Father's words, you're alive. We find hope in that Father's expression of extravagant grace. It gives us hope for the feast days and the every days that follow. And that's where we find ourselves today. Many of us are in the every days that follow the remarkable ones, the hard days that follow the mountaintops, when we realize that everyday relationships with God and with others require a mixture of choices and movement forward and back, the dance of accidents and messing up and forgiving, 
So what does this mean as we journey through Lent? Where are the places that you have been the prodigal in his leaving? The places you've thrown in the towel and slammed the door and said, I'm done. Where you've walked away without ever looking back. The places you've burned bridges and ruined relationships. We've all been in those places. Some of them have been out of necessity and some of them have been by choice. Sometimes those relationships have been with God and sometimes they've been with other people. Where are the places that you've been the prodigal in his returning? The places you've hit bottom and needed a way back up? The places you had to make a choice to return and ask for forgiveness? The places you know that you've been welcomed back and you feel unworthy to have received that welcome? As you continue this journey through Lent, examining self, be reminded of the leave-taking and the returning, the being lost and the being found. Be reminded of your place in both. Be reminded that the God who made you loves you, no matter which way you're going or how lost you are. Wherever it is that you find yourself this day, I offer you an invitation. If you've never before returned to God fully, by receiving and following the extravagant gift that he offered us in Jesus Christ. I invite you to do that. And if you don't know how, Bob and the rest of the staff will be here to help you. If you're looking for a place to belong, to feel God's welcome and find people with whom to work and build relationships, I invite you to make this your church home among the good people that God has put together in HRBC.